I, I don't think we've ever had a Thanksgiving between Christmas and New Year, but I think it will be a requirement from now on. <laughs> um, we will require everybody to make sure that their children are born in such a way as to have a Thanksgiving between Christmas and New Year because this text is absolutely perfect. In a sense, it concludes our texts through the Christmas period. It's the story, the account of Jesus being presented at the temple. Let, let's just very, very quickly, I know that when we read, go through the reading sometimes for us, uh, we don't fully absorb what's going on, but this is the narrative of an event. So it would be worthwhile just talking through what happens. And then after that, I just want to draw out three simple things and then conclude. So Mary and Joseph uh, take Jesus some days later to the temple for purification rites and for presentation. It's not really clear in the text, but there are two things that are going on during this occasion. On the one hand, Mary is being purified. Having given birth, she is being brought back into the fellowship of God's people through the purification rite at the temple, which is them being faithful to Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 1 to 4. And then secondly, Jesus is also being presented at the temple as the firstborn male of the family who is being consecrated uh, to the Lord. So there are two things going on. There are two observances of, of that their religious tradition and the law of, of God for them to be observing. What we also see is, um, by way of enactment, we see a social statement. What we see is that uh, Mary and Joseph bring sacrifices. Two doves or two, or two young pigeons. That's what can be brought to uh, the right as a sacrifice. Leviticus makes it really clear that what you are able to do by sacrifice is dependent on where you are socially uh, from a, a financial point of view. So you can sacrifice an expansive animal right the way through to as uh, Mary and Joseph bring two young doves through to a grain offering, flour, so, so, if you are in abject poverty, you would bring flour. What we see is a social comment that Mary and Joseph were not in abject poverty, but they would be considered part of the peasant class. That's where they were socially. They were not rich, but they brought what was required of them. Just as a little kind of moment there, this idea of different sacrifices plays into the first idea that sacrifice costs. If everybody was required to bring a grain offering or flour offering, then those who were in abject poverty, it would have cost them an amount. But those who were incredibly rich it would have been completely irrelevant. And so what we have in the law is this idea that sacrifice costs you. 
No matter where you are socially, it costs you. And that's the principle that we see sacrifice in the Old Testament. Sacrifice will always cost you something. And sacrifice is what is required to be in relationship with God. To be brought into fellowship. And so, we have this massively complex structure. Some of you within the next few days uh, might start reading through the Bible in a year. I think it's something like 85% of people give up partway through Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, book three. Don't get very far. Why? Because Leviticus is packed with complexity, with different things that have to be done. Why? Why is that part of the old law? God is saying in simple terms. And can I encourage you, if you're starting to read through the Bible through the year and get to Leviticus, keep a hold of this and it might get you through. Leviticus is about two things. One, being reconciled to God is a costly, complex thing. That's the first thing. That's why there's so many different complex laws. But secondly, where you are, there is sacrifice that can liberate you. There is always sacrifice that can liberate you and redeem you. That's the two things. So a complex book starts to make sense. And we have this young family going to the temple in Jerusalem and observing this. As they enter the temple... This old man, Simeon. This is, the, this is, if you like, the moment that distinguishes Mary and Joseph's journey to the temple with Jesus as different to all of the other people who were attending the temple on that day. This old man, Simeon, takes the baby and just makes this incredible proclamation, which we're going to look at in a few minutes, and then hands the baby back to the parents. And that's done. That's it. So in a sense, it's very, very mundane. They're observing rituals. They're doing the things that they should do. Simeon breaks into the moment and behaves in a way which is unusual, but with the hustle and bustle of the temple might not have been noticed by the majority of people. This might have been just something that went on. A few people surrounding Jesus might have seen this. It might not have been a dramatic event seen by everybody. This is life going on. So the first thing that I want to say is this. What we see here in this action is normal devotion. That's it. Normal devotion. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's just normal devotion. A little family acting out their faith. Does that seem surprising to you? On the face of it, no. 
But if we pause, and here we are, some days after all of the events of Christmas, where we have been remembering through the Bible the events that actually took place, angelic visitations, shepherds hearing incredible voices in the skies, coming to Bethlehem, finding the parents with Jesus, recounting this, these incredible events, angelic visitations to Mary and to Joseph, incredible events, astounding events, and they do the normal. I think that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that they remember to do the normal things. In the light of everything else that's gone on, there would be every possibility that they would drift into an imagination that they are somehow into a new phase of their faith where all this amazing stuff is going off. And forget about all of that stuff that we did beforehand. This is a brave new world. No. Mary and Joseph go through the normal devotions that they are called to do by the law. What does that have to say to us today? I think we live in a world where we have an expectation where our faith will do dramatic things for us. It'll take us into amazing places. It'll do incredible things. And we lose sight that our faith is practiced by routine and continuous acts of devotion. If there is one thing that we could, we could think about to, to almost springboard us into this coming year, it's this. That your faith and my faith will grow mostly in the ordinary. In the getting on and doing the ordinary things that we are called to do. Working, practicing, stepping day by day into our faith. There might be moments for you during this coming year where it, it's, it, it might be a dramatic moment. It might, you might sense, you might know, you might understand an incredible movement of God in your life. That might happen. But I'll tell you now that the most of your growth and the most of my growth and the most of the securing of your faith and the most of the securing of my faith is in the routine, diligent practice of our faith. That sounds so old-fashioned. It sounds boring. It sounds like the kind of stuff that we don't really want to do anymore. That sounds like the old stuff back there. Practicing our faith day by day, week by week. But that's what we're called to do. Practicing normal devotion. That's what we see this little family doing. Having practiced normal devotion, what we also see them doing is practicing normal 
consecration. Look at verse 23. As it is written in the law, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of, turtle, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What we see here is a family who are recognizing that to be in relationship with God means that they need to rely on sacrifice. They need to rely on what God has ordained and laid out and said to us, this is what you are to do. You are to take your son, you are to make a sacrifice, and you are to have faith in that sacrifice. Nothing changes. There is no kind of flash of light and explosion and sense of warmth or sense of confidence or electric shock tingling or whatever it might be. There is nothing that happens when that sacrifice is made. They are simply to trust in that sacrifice and to believe that that means that they're reconciled with God. What's that all about? Why? Why would God lay out a few thousand years of sacrifice? Why would He do that? Why would He say you've got to trust in something that doesn't seem to do anything? Because He's preparing us on the journey, step by step, where we might place ourselves in precisely the same place as Mary and Joseph. No, we have not walked into here with sacrifices to be made. Because the final sacrifice of Jesus has been made, but what do we have to do? We have to believe that that sacrifice that has been made is sufficient for us. It is all that is needed. That sacrifice, I've got to trust and believe that the sacrifice of Jesus is what is needed for me to be right with God. We have to practice that normal consecration, that giving ourselves to that hope in that sacrifice. I don't know about you, but on my Christian journey, I can tell you that there have been times where I've felt myself insecure. Times when I've just looked at myself, dug really deep, challenged who I am, thought about who I am and have reached the conclusion that who I am cannot be good enough for God. Have you been in that place? Have you been in the place where you look deeply into yourself and you say, I cannot be good enough for God? If we reach that point, and I pray that in ways that we do dig that deep, 
If we reach that point and conclude that we are not good enough for God, we have not seen how big the sacrifice of Jesus is. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than the combination of all of yours and all of my insecurity for the whole of our lives. Because God says, the sacrifice of my son once is sufficient. That's all that's needed. I know that we spent hundreds and hundreds of years repeating sacrifices again and again and again under all sorts of structures, under many different uh, times of the year, in different situations for your life. I know that you were repeating it, but all of that was to tell you two things. One, it was to tell you that sacrifice is necessary and you've got to keep going on it. And two, it was to tell you that all of that sacrifice is inferior compared to Jesus. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. In the bleakness of your thoughts, in the difficulties of my thoughts, our hope is this, that the sacrifice of the Son of God, no less, is so immense, so dramatic, that it is more than enough to satisfy a Father in heaven. Normal consecration. Alongside that, normal devotion, normal consecration, we finally have this extraordinary revelation. Look at what happens in verse 25. I love this little section of the, all of the Christmas story. This is possibly one of my favorite moments. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Let's just pause there. This old man, Simeon, he has spent his life hoping in God. That, that, that. If you could write anything as an epitaph, he spent his life hoping in God. That's where his hope was. But he had had a unique moment where God had spoken to him by the power of the Holy Spirit and he had said, not because of you, Simeon, but because of what I intend to do, you will see the Messiah. Can you imagine receiving that message? Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. It makes it 
honestly, it brings tears to my eyes, the idea of this man who has been waiting for God to fulfill a promise of the Messiah because he trusted in that God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is revealed to Simeon, that child, that child, that little baby, that tiny, weak, fragile little baby who has been brought in by those two peasant parents. He is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Talk about a contradiction. A Messiah you would think is going to ride in on a war chariot and look strong and brave and courageous. And he is carried in, wrapped in a blanket, carried by his peasant parents. And Simeon knows that this is the Messiah. This is our hope. This little child is our hope. We can say that children are our hope, can't we? In so many ways, children are our hope. Hope of a future, hope of a continuity, hope of a life beyond us. But this little child is the one that God has promised. This is the one who is going to redeem Israel. This is the one who God has been preparing His people for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Stood in the temple, all of this that surrounds Him is the preparation for that Messiah. And here is the Messiah, wrapped up in a blanket. Sleeping maybe. Crying maybe. And He took hold of that little child. And he prayed something astounding. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What a statement. But I think what catches me is those few words. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. <laughs> none of us, none of us know what the next 12 months will bring. We just don't know. But if we have seen the Messiah, if we have seen the hope of redemption in Jesus Christ, we are able to say with Simeon, you may dismiss your servant in peace. Because I have seen salvation. Do you see what he is saying? It is colossal. It is a statement that all of us can look into and say and ask the question, can I say that? Can I say I've seen salvation in Jesus and therefore if my time is now, that's okay. You can dismiss this servant in peace because I know salvation. 
the reality is that we can only be dismissed in peace if we have seen salvation. That's the truth before God. We have peace through Jesus and it is the only way in which we can be dismissed in peace. Who do you want to be like in the Bible? You would not go far wrong to want to be like Simeon. Because he'd spent his life anticipating and believing what God had said. And at the end where he trusted in what God had said and felt that God had fulfilled that promise, he said, my life is now complete. You can take me. It's an extraordinary revelation that Simeon makes. But he speaks prophetically then about the nature in which this salvation is going to work out. Look at verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You and I miss the purpose of the Advent season if we do not understand that Advent is all about the coming of the Judge Jesus. He is coming in judgment. And that judgment begins with His first coming and the life that He brings. And what does He say? What does Simeon say? When we look at this life, some people are going to look at this life and they're going to turn against it. And in turning against it, their hearts will be revealed. They will speak against this Jesus. And judgment will be theirs because they speak against this Jesus. Jesus comes in judgment. A judgment which confronts us and causes us to say, what do you make of this Jesus of Nazareth? What do you make of this claim of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? And He stands before us and we say, what do we make of Him? And if we see that Jesus comes in judgment, then Simeon also prophesies the nature of the judgment of God. Because he concludes these words with a word to Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul too. We read at the final hours of Jesus that Mary is one of those women who observes the death of her son. Her soul would be pierced. Her heart would be broken. But what we are actually seeing is the supreme judgment of God. The supreme judgment of God because He says, 
I will come in judgment, yes, and I will come to be judged. Judge me. Find me guilty, he says. Pierce the soul of my mother with an unjust death. And yet the very judgment that gives every one of us hope because we see that this is how my wrongdoing is resolved. Because judgment is in Jesus, is placed on Jesus. Jesus bears that judgment. Mary's prophecy from Simeon would have come back in waves as Jesus was nailed to a cross and He cried His last. Those words all of those years earlier when she held a little baby in her arms in the temple and this old man says, I have seen the judgment. I have seen the justice. I have seen the Messiah. I have seen the hope. And the sword will pierce your soul. We have every reason to praise our God, to thank our Savior, Jesus Christ, that He did not step back from that judgment.